My name is Jeremy. Welcome here. We're delighted that you're continuing in worship with us. Um, kiddos, pay attention. I got some stuff for you, but you have to use your, use your brain and your imagination. Today I want to take you to a place in your mind, in your imagination called Tyre and Sidon. And I know you don't know exactly where that is, um, but let's just think of it a little bit like this. It's an island off the coast of Israel. Israel looks like a banana on the right side or the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And this little island is kind of an important place because they're the first people in the ancient Near East to build boats. Like today, you expect there's going to be submarines and battleships and big you know, yachts and cruisers and sailboats and all this cool stuff. Well, way back when, there weren't a lot of boats. And so this these people were the first merchants of the waters and as a result they became very rich they had all kinds of stuff and so you see them throughout all of God's scripture throughout the Bible you see them for example in the Old Testament they're the people who supply King Solomon with the goods needed to build the the temple like the cedars and all the gold and all this stuff and and Solomon in turn would send him produce or vegetables and um, grain and stuff like that from their land in exchange for all the wealth and materials that was coming from this island. So you can imagine on this island, <clears throat> everyone wants it. In the, in the ancient Near East, basically what they do is if they want something, they try to take it. Probably like you do from your brothers and sisters. You just walk into the room and you grab something and you run fast or you fight them, right? And if you win, it's yours until mom and dad come home. And then there's, you know, some international mediation there going on to settle the dispute. What happens in that time period is very much the same way. They have all this stuff, so people want it. So all the ancient kingdoms would go after it. For example, Egypt wanted to conquer this island. They could never do it. Pharaoh, chariots, horsemen, never were they able to infiltrate this place and conquer it. So too, with ancient Assyria, they wanted this island. They're like, let's go get it. Let's kill them and take it. But they just couldn't get across the waters and climb up the walls. And they're getting arrows and darts and fire and rocks rain down on them. They're like, never mind, let's go home. So too, with the Babylonians after that. I mean, the Babylon, the great Babylon, the great, the ancient wonders of the uh, Near East. I mean, they had these lions and elephants and catapults and all this crazy stuff. Not enough. Finally, eventually, there was this guy by the name of Alec. Actually, Alexander the Great. And what he did was this. He said, okay, no one can cross these waters just like by ship. So what I'm going to do is build a bridge. And I'm not just going to build a bridge, but I'm going to cut off their water supply, their fresh water. They're in the middle of the sea. So, you know, we want them to get thirsty. So let's cut off the water supply. So he takes the town that surrounds, that supplies them with water and completely obliterates that town, cuts them off. And then he builds a siege like this bridge to this little island. It's only a half mile off the shore. And then, after several years, the people are finally completely depleted, and he's able to conquer it. Well, now, you know what happened? That bridge that he built across the ocean, it actually, because of all the silt and sediment and erosion and decay and the currents and yada yada stuff I don't understand, turned into a permanent land bridge. As a result, this place is now like a peninsula, like what we have up north, only not quite so big. 
It's this peninsula, and you could go there today. It's in Lebanon. And in fact, if we were really going into the history, what I'd do is I'd show you a whole bunch of slides. You can look at Google Earth. You can zoom down in and see how cool it looks. Beautiful beaches, still a lot of seafaring trade and stuff like that. But since it's not a history lesson this morning, so it's a sermon, we're going to push pause right there and say this. If you want to know more about this place, this um, fall, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take little nuggets like this. And I'm going to have a class called the director's cut. It's kind of like the outtakes or the stuff that didn't make it into the sermon. We're going to dive deep into, oh man, there's a theological issue here. I want to ask a question I didn't get to in big church. You'll get to every other Wednesday night. So what we'll do is just take the previous material and the upcoming material, combine it and say, what did we miss on Sunday? Or what What would we have liked to have more on? And you can just raise your hand, ask that question, and we'll talk about it. If I don't know, I don't know. But maybe there's more information that we just happened to leave out. So that's what that's going to be. But for today, all you need to know is this is a really wealthy place that is not necessarily inhabited by Jews. These are ancient Phoenicians. But the thing is, they all speak Greek by Jesus' time because who conquered them? Alexander the Great, and he was Greek, so everybody gets to speak Greek. So, today I want to start then by asking this very important question that I think this text answers for us, and that is this. How do we get God's help? How do we get God's help? Does anyone in here by chance happen to want or need God's help? I need it. And if you don't need it now, you will at some point. And I guarantee you, you probably don't even realize it, but you do. Everybody needs God's help. Rich or poor, healthy or not, doesn't matter. We need God. And this text has long been one of my very favorites in the whole Bible. I was so looking forward to preaching it because I wanted to dig deep. And of course, one week wasn't enough. But there is some stuff here that is absolutely profound that we encounter on the lips of this seemingly pagan, unrefined, of all things in that culture, a woman when she encounters Christ. So... What do we do? I mean, she needs help. What does she do? And how does that apply to us? How does she get Jesus to pay attention to her? This important rabbi from a different country. How do we get God's help? What we see that she does, we need to do too. Mark chapter 7, verse 24, says this. And from there, that's Jesus was in, in the region of Israel, uh, near the dead, or sorry, the Sea of Galilee in the north. The Sea of Galilee is where he walked on water. So he just got done walking on water, wants to dry off his feet a little bit, and so he's going somewhere else. From there, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's a place we just talked about. It's non-Jewish. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know that he was there. Yet, because of all the clamor, Jesus could not be hidden. 
And immediately a woman who of all things, if this doesn't tug at your heartstrings, I don't know what does, whose little daughter, her, her baby girl, this beautiful, precious, innocent, sweet little thing, had an unclean spirit. Perhaps because the mom was messing with idolatry or paganism, who knows what. But there's evil in this little child. Well, she did three things that all of us should do, that all people need to do. She heard of Jesus. She came to Jesus. And she fell down at his feet. She heard, she came, and she fell down. Now, here's three strikes against her. The woman, now, she was a woman in that culture. That's strike one. She was a Gentile. That's strike two. She wasn't a Jew. And even worse, she was a Syrophoenician. Strike three. She begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. And look what Jesus said. Hey, honey, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Not exactly. Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table Eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. So how do we get God to help us? Well, I think one of the first questions is this brings up, and I hope that I sort of pointed this out, is we got to ask the question, who does God help? Because maybe, maybe we're either in the right or the wrong category. I mean, perhaps we're the wrong color or we're not wealthy enough. Maybe God has preferences. Maybe God plays favorites. Just like everyone else, God chooses particular ones that he likes better. Is that the case? Does God have an economic preference? I mean, if we read the Bible, there's a lot in it about the poor. Perhaps God likes the poor better. The poor show up over and over again, and he's commanding his people to treat them fairly and treat them kindly and look out for the poor and the widow. So maybe this woman's poor, and maybe she's a widow, and therefore Jesus just happens to like her better because she's a poor widow. But what did we say earlier about this region? Does anyone remember? It was only like three minutes ago. (laughs) It's rich. And does the text anywhere say that she's a widow? No. So even though Jesus helps a lot of widows, and we often see their plot, plot, and the point is him reaching out to the least of these, there's a good chance that this woman was wealthy And well-to-do. Perhaps her husband was a leader in the city and she has leisure time, which is very, very rare for people in that day. Maybe she was well-dressed and well-appointed. And in fact, 
in that culture, what would happen is if the Jews who are continually destroyed by the uh, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, and now the Romans had continually been taxed to the point of depletion, they would see this person as actually a dog, not only a dog who eats from under the table, but a mean mangy mongrel who steals stuff off of the table, who takes their food and exploits them like slaves. And so here is a wealthy Potentially, potentially, Bible doesn't say this, but I'm trying to give you the, the context of what's happening here. Here's a wealthy woman from Tyre and, uh, from Tyre and Sidon coming to Jesus and asking him to help. Why should poor carpenter Jewish Nazarene Jesus help this wealthy woman? I mean, she would be the type of one woman who today would have no trouble Buying a $5 coffee and living in a 5,000 square foot home. She's the one that everyone says, oh, look at their opulence. She's the one who we quickly criticize. Should Jesus help her? She's rich. Don't the rich have everything they already need? You know what Jesus thinks of the rich? Do you know what Jesus thinks of the rich? Because there's a good chance what's in your mind and what's in his mind is different. Here's what Jesus thinks of the rich. Mark chapter 1. Do you remember the rich young ruler? He's the bad guy, right? He's the one who walked away. Do you know what Mark says? Mark chapter 10. Jesus looked at him and what? He loved him? Wait, wait, hold on. Let's go back and read that again. I don't think that's right. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Hmm. Hmm. Jesus loves the rich? Jesus loves the rich. Let me say this very clearly to you today. I don't know what economic situation you're in. And a lot of times people, even in religious spots, play up the guilt trip and they just burn it on the rich. And they say, look at everybody everywhere else. See how much don't you feel bad? Let me tell you something a little bit different. If you're wealthy, Jesus loves you. Can I say that again? Here's the message to you today. If you are rich, Jesus loves you. If you are wealthy, hear God's word to you today. Jesus loves you. He loves you just as much as anybody else. It's not about being rich. It's not about being poor. The reason all the rich and the righteous and the stuff like that's in the Bible is because what he's concerned about is not what's in your wallet, but what's in your heart. And if you are someone who's got a lot in your wallet, then sometimes it's really hard to have a lot in your heart. And Jesus says that too, you know, in, in Matthew, he says, hey, look, it's going to be hard for you. Let's be honest. If you're rich, it's really easy to trust in what you have and not in him. But if you're poor, you're like, oh, God, I need help. You're raising your hand right away because you know tomorrow's another day and you're not sure if you'll make it through. You're constantly asking for help. But if you're doing OK, unless you're really humble and really godly, it's hard. To remember that you need when you don't. 
And so Jesus loves the rich. He cares about you and he wants you to go into heaven. It may be hard, but even though things are impossible with man, they're possible with God. So if you're rich, you can go right into the kingdom. Not because you are rich, but because Jesus loves you and you trust in him. That's the same thing everybody else does. That's why in the Bible, all the way through, it's like, if you're rich, be careful how you treat the poor. Be careful how you treat the widow. Be careful, be careful. Not because it's a guilt trip, but because God wants righteousness and justice righteousness and justice. And if you're rich and you can afford the lawyer and they're poor and they can't, then you could potentially take advantage of them. And so you hear all this stuff about in court, don't do this, don't do that, because God doesn't want people to be taken advantage of just because. But it doesn't say you're a bad person because you're doing okay. What it actually says is Jesus loves you. So let's be clear, God loves everybody regardless of their economic situation. So my message to you today is not, let me be very clear, it is not give more you filthy rich. No. My message is, Jesus loves you. Man, does God love you. And it's going to be hard for you. And in fact, statistics point that out. There is a cost to being rich. What we see in these families is more and more there is depression. There is abuse of prescription drugs. And there is all kinds of issues that come right along with it. You need Jesus just as much as anybody else. So again, I tell you, God loves you. If you're doing okay, you're not unless you have Jesus. And then if you do have Jesus then the other stuff really doesn't matter. If you're rich, God loves you. So, number one, does he have an economic preference? No. No, 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 no. God loves people. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. What about an ethnic preference? I mean, look at our ridiculous culture. Can I just say that for a minute? It's kind of pathetic right now, isn't it? I mean, the reality is we've had this Horrible history with slavery. Now we got all this stuff with immigration. There's nutso-out ideas out there all over the place. And it seems like whoever's screaming them the loudest is the one who shows up on TV. It's an outrage culture. We pick teams by calling people names and then decide which ones we like. It's terrible. We're filled with hate groups and all kinds of other baloney. The reality is the ancient Near East was really not that different. They threw rocks then just like they throw rocks today. Tyre and Sidon were wealthy. We already talked about this. They're from the north. And one thing I didn't tell you earlier, this was the home of the person by the name of Jezebel. Do you ever know, have you heard anybody named Jezebel? Probably not. There's a reason for that. She gets a pretty bad rap here because she's pretty much as bad as it gets when it comes to paganism and idolatry. She in every way does everything she can to oppose God. She's the epitome of evil in the Old Testament. And she is from this place. So when the Jews think about Tyre and Sidon, they're not like, whoo-hoo. They're like, oh, yuck. I hate that place. They're terrible. We can't stand them. They're evil. They're all bad. They'd quickly show up on the internet or Twitter or whatever and get a bunch of hits. Perhaps Jesus should ignore her because she is a woman. She is a Gentile. 
and she's from Syrophoenicia. Maybe he has an ethnic preference. But what becomes very clear from this point on, this is a transition, is Jesus has just dealt with the Pharisees, the one who thinks they're in favor. They actually reject him. And his ministry now sort of somewhat shifts. He's still to the Jew first and then to Gentile because that's the chronological way that God set it up to work out his redemptive plan for humanity. He worked through this Old Testament people group and now through the church. That's just his plan. I don't get it, but we got to trust him for it. But here's, here's the thing. It's shifting now as the Jews are rejecting him. All of a sudden the Gentiles are accepting him. And so at this point in this story, things begin to change. And you can see that we're moving towards that grand finale in Revelation where every tongue and every tribe and every nation are gathered around the throne. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, purple, black, Caucasian, American, Asian, whatever. You believe in Jesus, you're there. Here's the great transition. And so the question then is, who does God help? It's not a special people group. It's not economic. It's not ethnic. But instead it's this. Here's the answer. Jesus helps those who humble themselves and confidently trust in him. Please write this down. If you want God's help, there's only one way to get that. And it is this. Just like this woman in the text, you have to come to Jesus. You have to fall at his feet. And then you have to believe in him. God only helps those who humble themselves and confidently trust in him. Now what I really wanted to put here, you can leave that slide up for just a second. What I really wanted to put here is just two words, humility and faith. Humility and faith. I wanted to keep it like that. But then I thought, you know what? If I use the word faith, nobody's going to know what I mean by that. Because the reality is, when we hear faith, we think about like religion and mystical and mysterious and all this weird stuff. But what faith actually actually is, is confidence. Like, how do you know your mom's going to pick you up from school? Because you trust her, you believe her, and she's done it every day, all your life, and she'll keep doing it. That's what's going to happen. You have faith in her. It's not really a question. You know, based on her character, that she'll be there. You have confidence in her person, in her essence. That's what faith is. It's not just like, yeah, I believe that Jesus exists. The demons do that. Yeah, I believe he's a good teacher. That doesn't save you. Believing in Jesus, faith in him means you are Fully confident that he will do what he said he would. That's faith. You trust him. I'm trying to describe to you something you can't see, something you can't hear, something you can't smell, something you can't touch. It's called faith. But what is faith? It is confidence in Christ. That you believe he's going to do what he said he'd do no matter what. That's faith. So i got to put something up there other than faith, otherwise we don't get it. Those who come to Jesus humble themselves, even if they're rich. They humble themselves, they get down on their knees before him, and they believe that he can. Look, if she didn't believe that this guy could heal her daughter, why is she wasting her time? She came to him because she knew he could. He'd already done it before. He beat Satan and won. Remember, Jesus wins every time. 
there's any conflict, Jesus wins. Doesn't matter if it's Jewish rulers, Roman rulers, demons, disease, the laws of nature, whatever. If Mark doesn't teach you anything else, it should teach you this, that Jesus wins. If there's ever a question, Jesus wins. Humility comes from confidence in Christ that you believe he is who the Bible says he is and he will do what he said he would do. I hope I beat that into the ground as hard as I could. And we got to let it get into our hearts because it's a lot easier to preach it than to believe it and do it. But let me tell you, that's where it's at. Who does God help? He helps those who are humble and who trust in him. So then, pause. If Jesus helps those who are humble and confidently trust in him, how do we get his help? I just, I hope, I clearly showed you from scripture that's what happens. So let's ask this question then. How do we get his help? If that's who Jesus is and what he does, how, how do we become a part of it? Well, the first thing we obviously need to do is be humble. So let's, and I've, I've got into this already, but I want to show you this slide. I think we have a slide that says humility comes from confidence in Christ. Here, here's the point. You know, uh, humility is not something you can manufacture. You know, you can try to beat yourself up. But what I realized is this, is, you know, if I can give you a lot of steps to being humble, but eventually we're just kind of like feeling bad about ourselves. And that's not really humility. Humility is actually this. It's to have confidence in Christ. And the way it works then, here's the next slide. I think I saw this one. Humility comes from confidence in Christ, because if you're confident in yourself, which is what a lot of us mistakenly coach our children to be, kids, you don't want to be self-confident because eventually you're going to fail and you're going to mess up. I promise it'll happen. Hear me now, believe me later. (laughs) You're going to make a mistake. And then you're shot, right? Because you're supposed to be self-confident. No, no, no. Don't be self-confident. That's called pride. When you're confident in yourself, that's called pride. We're limited. We can't do everything. We don't know everything. We can't take care of everybody. There's no reason to put our confidence in ourselves. The only place to put your confidence is in Christ. And if you do that, then you're in the sweet spot, which is humility. Because the goal of a Christian is that he must increase and we decrease. And so the more you lift him up, the bigger he becomes, more front and center he is, the more you step back. And all of a sudden that makes humility really easy. Read any book in Christian literature and what they, they give this advice like, okay, how do I become more humble? Focus on the greatness of God. Why? Because the point is when he gets bigger, we get smaller. And if our confidence is in him, then that confidence never fails. It never falters. It never changes. He always has enough. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if that's the case, then we're always confident. And as a result, humility and confidence go hand in hand. 
Not because we're confident in ourselves, but we're confident in Christ. As he gets bigger, we get smaller. As he gets bigger, I'm more confident. If I'm trying to be confident in myself, I'm going to have to overcompensate or I'm going to have to back out of things that I'm not big enough to do. But that's not what Christ calls us to. He calls us to do bigger things than ourselves. And the only way we can is if we're trusting in him. Real confidence comes from Christ, not from ourselves. And so we have to get there. We have to be there. We have to be not self-confident, but Christ-confident. Let me show you how this works in this text. Humility comes from confidence in Christ. So, in this confrontation, it's really strange because there's this back and forth. And you see the back and forth in all the scriptures leading up until this point. There's back and forth between Jesus and Nicodemus, the Pharisees and Jesus. There's back and forth, back and forth. And what Mark is hoping to do is have you jump into the story with him. To think, how would I answer Jesus if he did this? If he said this to me, what would I say to him? Now there's a couple different ways we could answer If you're in a confrontation with somebody, perhaps the self-confidence gurus would say, you got to stand up for yourself. I mean, if if someone said that to me, I'd be like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. Listen here, pal, who are you calling dog? You want to see dog? I'm going to bite you, you know, boom. Watch out. Here I come. I'm the stuff and I'm confident and you better back down. That's exactly the opposite of what she did, isn't it? I mean, she could have done that. Who are you calling dog, you low-down, dirty Jew? No, but Jesus went right after it. I mean, this would be like if Jesus confronted in one of these racial relationships and he said the most damning thing he could to the other person from a racial perspective. I mean, this is incendiary. This is hot. Those are fighting words. This is something that most people would not accept. But she does the teachings of Christ before Christ even teaches them. She turns the other cheek. She humbles herself. And what she, and what Jesus is doing is he's trying to upset you. We can't soften this by saying, oh, well, the Greek word here for dog is actually like a little nice little puppy, so it's not quite as bad. He just called her a dog, man. They sniff their bottoms and eat their poop. That's bad. And in this society, they didn't get shots. They didn't go to the groomer. And they didn't get carried in anybody's purse. <laughs> they wandered the streets and they ate the refuse, including corpses. They were disgusting. Jesus called her a dog and we can't desensitize what he said here. Jesus is not always nice. Thank you. (laughs) Amen. He's not. Don't let the media tell you Jesus is warm and fuzzy. And also don't tell you he's, let them tell you he's white and got blue eyes and blonde hair. He's dark. He's different. And most people didn't recognize him. And here he is very confrontational. Just like he was with the rich young ruler. Only with the rich young ruler, what he does is he goes right after that man's heart. And he knows the man's heart's in his money. And so he's not worried about all the other good things he's done. He doesn't care what kind of philanthropist he is or how many laws he's kept or yada yada. Doesn't matter. He says, where's your heart, dude? 
Let me, let me test it here. It's exactly what Jesus would do to you and me. He'd walk into this room. He'd look at the one thing in your heart that he knew is wrong and go, boom, and put his finger on it. Fear, anxiety, greed, pride, lust. Doesn't matter. He would see right through you and go straight to it. He doesn't have time to mess around. He's got a few years left and he's going to the cross. He's not mincing words. Here's the thing. If you need built up, he's going to build you up. But if you need brought down a notch or two, he's going to bring you down. That's what he did for the rich young ruler. And he's testing this woman to see if she needs it too. And guess what? She doesn't. Here is the first person in the whole gospel who gets it right. Peter, man, he's nuts. He's way out there. But this woman, this Syrophoenician Gentile woman, is spot on. She answers him not with objections, not with snapping her fingers, not with counter questions, not with accusations like everybody else here. But instead she says, oh, you got me. You're right. You are, you are so right, Lord. I'm in this pagan culture. I've done things that are dirty and filthy, stinky and yuck. I'm embarrassed. I'm not proud. I got nothing to say. You are right. That's who you want to be. That's it right there. You see, Jesus is telling these parables all the way through. And disciples are sitting there going, eh? What does that mean, Lord? Can you run that by me again? Because they can't enter into the parables. They just can't seem to do it. But this woman is the very first who jumps right into the story and says, that's me. I'm the dog. I get it. I see what you're talking about, Lord. I'm the dog. Who would say that this morning? Oh, Jesus, we are the dogs. Are you willing to believe in him confidently, come before him and now bow down and say, God, if I could but have a scrap. Do you know what we would be like if we but had scraps? Can you imagine a scrap of the infinite resources of God? What does a scrap of infinite look like? It is astounding, it is amazing, it is beyond comprehension. If I had a scrap of God's wisdom, if I had a scrap of His grace, if I had a scrap of His patience, oh boy, would I be different. Man, she gets it right. She's so right. This is one of the most beautiful women and most beautiful responses in all of Scripture. It's perfect. And Jesus is somewhat blown away. I mean, he doesn't get surprised because he knows everything. But if I'm imagining a situation, I'm seeing him looking at her. Looking back at his disciples, looking at her and being like, It's going to take a long time before these guys come around. She gets it right away. Man, this is awesome. She's one of my very favorite characters in all scripture. 
Can you ask him for a crumb? Will you ask God for a crumb this week? Will you go before him and not tell him all the good things you did and why you think you should and how somebody else got and blah, blah, blah. Your life is hard. No, (laughs) it is. But just ask for a crumb. Go to Jesus like you really mean it. Self-confidence is sin. Christ's confidence is a sweet spot. Look what Jeremiah says. This is how we up him. It's how we raise him up. Let not the wise man, you can put in anything there, boast in his wisdom. Let them not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich boast in their riches. If you've got anything you think is good, don't brag about that. But here's what you do brag about. But let them boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The more we lift up Jesus, the easier <clears throat> the humility becomes. So how do I get God's help? I think I think here's my simple solution for you. I hope. <coughs> Just admit it and move on. Admit it and move on. That's it. What do I mean by that? I mean, okay, accept the sinner label. Say, God, you're right. You're righteous, I'm not. I need your cleansing. And then in each and every instance where you fail the standard of perfection, do the same thing. Say, Lord, I'm so sorry. I was wrong. But then you don't sit there and wallow in it. Because if you do, you are defaming the cross of Christ. Instead, you say, I was so wrong, but you've got me so covered. What you did on Calvary is so much more powerful than any sin I've ever done. And I have so much more confidence in that. That I have no fear of the implications whatsoever of what this might bring. You see, Christ's sacrifice is like this. His his sacrifice is more costly. His blood is more effective. And his resurrection is more powerful than all of our sins. You may have heard me say that before. And I hope that I'll keep saying it again and again. Because here's the thing. Sin is costly. Right? Sin has a cost. Sin has effects. There are leftover residual in our lives that occur as a result of our decisions. And sin is powerful. But sin is never more costly than Jesus' blood. It is always the most valuable thing ever. No sin that you can do is more costly or valuable than Jesus' blood. No sin that you can do is more effective or powerful than what he did on the cross. And no sin that you can do is more powerful than his resurrection. Jesus' blood is more costly, more effective, more powerful than all our sin. So we admit our sin. But then we get on and get on with it good. Because Christ has got this. See, when we up our confidence in Christ, it's really easy to be humble. So we're trusting in something other than ourselves. Trusting in self? No way. Trusting in Christ? 
perfect. So let me just ask myself the question, what does that look like for Jeremy Lobdell? So if I am to put my confidence in Christ and move on, for me it looks like this. What does it look like for you? Maybe a little different, maybe the same. First of all, it's to believe that Jesus saves me from my sin. Secondly, it's to accept or that Jesus can overcome the things that I cannot overcome. He's more powerful. It's to believe that he loves me despite the many things I do not love about myself. It's to believe that Jesus actually can make all things well. To believe that Jesus will heal me, that he will comfort me, and that he will get me through what I think I cannot. To believe that his strength will be there when I fail. To believe that he can do well in areas where I never do. To actually believe this Bible is true and that someday I will be perfect. You won't even recognize me. I want to say that you will because that's what scripture says, but I feel so far from that. I can't even imagine what that'll be like. But the reality is, if you're believing in Jesus, every single person in this room who believes in Jesus will be perfect. God will raise you from the dead just like he did his son. So how do we get his help? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with economics. It doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity. It's one simple way. You humble yourself and you trust in him. Humbling yourself isn't that complicated. All it means is you trust in him a whole bunch and not yourself. And the more you do that, the less you trust in yourself, the less you have to worry about. Trusting yourself, you're like, oh no, I might fail. You're trusting in Christ, you're like, eh, yeah, can't lose. How often do we really do that? Not very often. So we'd be sitting back having a good time every day. We wouldn't be worried about a thing. We worry because we're worried about what we're going to do or how it's going to go. The reality is this. We need just to own it, step up, grab it, and say, yeah, that's the way it is, Lord. You're right. You got this and I don't. He must increase and I must decrease. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Bring yourself down and he will bring you up. Humility and confidence in Christ. It's the perfect companion. This is the place we want to be. Father, we praise you and thank you for your only son, Jesus. Died on the cross to save us from our sins. We cannot do it ourselves. And it's not just our sins. It's everything. Lord, I I trust in my own efforts sometimes. And every time I do, I fail. Sometimes it goes well. And that's probably just... The devil trying to distract me from you. I pray that you'd forgive me for my sins. Help me to own it. And just be confident in you. And move on. Thank you Lord that we get to sing. And worship. And love you today. In Jesus name. Amen.